How do you want to be remembered? Or to ask it a different way, if God took you to a different place, would you want to be missed? And I suppose we should ask the question whether that's a right kind of question even to ask, because certainly, as uh, I mentioned, there's parallels between this passage and the one that uh, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy. His emphasis in 2 Timothy is clearly, what's God's assessment of me? I fought the good fight, finished the course, kept the faith. God has evaluated me and will reward me. And certainly that is the most important question. How does God evaluate our ministry, our service in various ways? And yet at the same time, I think there is an element of serving, recognizing that we can and should have an effect on the people that we minister to. And there can be a right sort of affection that flows out of that and a genuine uh, sorrow or, or awareness of someone's absence when they have to leave a particular ministry that I think we see here in this passage and I think is a good thing. So do you want to be missed? And what, in what way can you minister so that that is the result even though the main purpose of ministering well is, of course, to bring glory to God? I think we see this as we look at this passage with Paul. Starting in verse 17, it probably is helpful for us to think back, why is Paul in Miletus? He left the uproar in Ephesus, and then he went to Macedonia, spent several months there, uh, was seeking to go straight back to Jerusalem, but was not able to because of the plot of the Jews. So he goes back through Macedonia, he stops and is gathered at Troas and uh, preaches. The, the young man falls out of the window, is restored to life. And then they end up in Miletus. Paul not going back to Ephesus because there's probably still some, even though some months have passed, probably some awareness that if I go back there, there's a decent chance I could be arrested or detained in some way. And I have this urgent sense of needing to get back to Jerusalem both to deliver the gift from the various Gentile churches to those in Jerusalem who had need, and also so that he could preach the gospel, hopefully, during the Feast of Pentecost, when many people would be gathered, like we saw back in Acts chapter 2. Jews from all around the world, Paul had a burden to see them saved. He wanted an opportunity to preach the gospel to them. So, he's now in Miletus, but he wants to take an opportunity and minister one more time to the churches in and around Ephesus. And he does so by gathering the elders of those churches to him at Miletus. He starts out and he reviews his ministry with them. He says, from the first day he set foot in Asia, I was with you the whole time. Before we go on, I think we should consider what was the course that led him to Asia. Well, if you remember back in Acts chapter 16, verse 6, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So on his second missionary journey, he was not permitted to go into Asia. He was not actually able to go into Asia until his third missionary journey. At the very end of his second missionary journey, he does have a brief stop in Ephesus on his way back to Antioch. And he says, if God wills, I'll come back to you. And then in his third missionary journey, he does. And we see this at the end of chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19. And so the course that led him to Ephesus, to Asia, was that God 
initially said, you can't go there, I want you to go here first. And then God permits him to go there, and he goes, and he has a profitable ministry for one of the longest periods of time that he spends in any one place during his missionary journeys. He says in verse 19, I served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Well, what did that look like? Well, you remember in chapter 19 and verse 9, some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people. So he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So there were plots, there was opposition through the Jews that prevented him from continuing ministry as he preferred to do first and foremost in the synagogues. And think about Paul's burden for his fellow Jews. Paul wanted to see them saved. He wanted them to turn from their sin. He wanted them to trust Christ. And yet every time he would go and speak the gospel, a significant portion of the Jews in any place that he went would oppose him, uh, try to thwart his ministry, even try to kill him. And that had to be heartbreaking for Paul. I want you to hear the truth. I want you to trust God. And yet you keep being hard-hearted. You keep turning away from the truth. So I think that's part of what he has in mind when he talks about the tears and the trials that came upon him through the plots of the Jews. Despite that opposition, verse 20 says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. I think that this serves something as a model for ministry, not only for Paul, not only for the early church, but also for the kinds of ministry that has to be happening in the church today. Because it's one thing to declare the Word of God publicly in the setting that we have on Sundays, on Wednesdays, but it's another thing to have conversations with people one-on-one -on -one or in small groups or with families. And so um, it's certainly something that there have been obstacles to doing that, just in light of different things that have happened in the last six months, but there's also something that I want to continue to do because I feel that that's part of my responsibility because there's conversations that we can have when we're in a smaller context that are different than this. I have some awareness of what's going on in your lives when I'm up here preaching a sermon. But there's a different sort of awareness that comes from having individual conversations with you. And you, you know, being open and honest with me. And so I think Paul sets for me and for all of us, a model of ministry that isn't just, I teach a Sunday school class, I preach on Sunday morning, but do I know what's going on in your life during the week? Do you know what's going on in each other's lives during the week so that you can pray for each other and encourage each other and rejoice with each other and cry with each other and help one another? That, I think, is a pattern for the church that we see here and that we can still have today. When he said he did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, there are certain things that you don't want to preach. Because you know that you're going to, they're going to bother people, or they're just complicated to think through. But if it's profitable, if it's part of what it says in Matthew 28, 18-20, teaching all things that Christ has commanded, or all the things connected with the gospel, I have to do it, you have to do it if you're in a teaching role, we can't say it's too hard, it's too uncomfortable, it's too whatever, and skip it. Paul faithfully did it, and we ought to as well. Verse 21 says, He solemnly testified to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That is at the core of the message that must be proclaimed. There are a lot of other things where there is some measure of latitude in the way that the church might do or practice certain things. The time of day that a church meets, even something like, could someone be a good Christian and believe that uh, children should be baptized as infants? They could theoretically be a good Christian and believe that, not in this church, but just generally speaking. But this message that Paul proclaimed, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the core, that we cannot give up, that has to be proclaimed. Notice the phrase solemnly testified. Verse 21, we're going to see it in verse 24, and we're going to see the word testify again in verse 26, and Paul also did it, uh, so there, we're going to see it three or four times, this idea of testifying or solemnly testifying. Paul viewed the proclamation of the gospel as a responsibility that was given by God that had to be done and that was a serious task and not something he could skip out on. We need to view it the same way because it's easy for us to view proclaiming the gospel as something that's optional. If I'm having a really good week as a Christian, I'll share the gospel. If there's this really clear opportunity, like this person just comes up, and they're like the Ethiopian eunuch, and I happen to be running alongside their chariot, and they say, hey, what does this passage of Scripture mean? Well, then I'll explain the gospel. Those don't happen a whole lot. You and I view this as a responsibility that we have to be doing regularly and faithfully and probably at least weekly, if not daily, as God gives us opportunities, because that is how Paul viewed it, and I think it sets an example for us as well. And then he says in verse 22, Bound in spirit, I am on my way in Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. And some translations, I think, have it as a lowercase spirit, like he's bound in his spirit, Nasby has it as he's bound in the Spirit, as in the Holy Spirit is compelling him. I think that's probably in light of what it says in verse 23, the Holy Spirit testifies, bonds and afflictions await him. Again, I think we talked about this last week, and it'll come up again next week. Was Paul just sort of off the reservation, doing his own thing, uh, just sort of one of these people that's out looking for trouble and going through persecution because he feels like it's somehow his duty? Or was he following the path that God had laid out for him? Luke seems to, unless I'm misreading the text in some way, and I don't think that I am, Luke seems to be setting up a parallel between the compulsion that Christ had to come to Jerusalem to be crucified and the compulsion that Paul had to come to Jerusalem and to testify about the one who was crucified. They're not the same. One accomplished salvation, the other merely set a pattern for faithful service. And yet, it's interesting the way that he shows the development of Paul's path toward Jerusalem, the sense of urgency to get back there, the opportunities for ministry that awaited him, that overcame the recognition and the certainty that when you get there, you will for sure be bound and you may very well die. In Christ's case, death was certain. In Paul's case, death was imminent, although the exact time of it was unclear. I don't think Paul was disobeying God's will in what he did. I think he had a very clear sense, this is where God wanted him to be. Why do I say that? Well, think back to the beginning of Paul's ministry in Asia. The Holy Spirit said, don't go there, so he didn't go there. 
The Holy Spirit lets him minister there. He ministers faithfully for several years. The Spirit warns him of what is to come, but for, as, as best I can tell, it is not a, this is what's coming, so don't go. It's a, this is what's coming, so be ready for it, and I'm still going to be with you. Think back to what God said to Paul at the very beginning of his ministry. You will suffer for my name's sake. You will stand before kings and testify of me. Paul, in the next few chapters, is going to testify to Felix, Festus, Agrippa, Caesar, Caesar's household. He's going to fulfill the thing that God said would characterize his ministry way back at the very point of his conversion. And I think that the reason that this is accomplished is by the specific path that he goes on to Rome. Could he theoretically have had opportunity to minister the gospel to those rulers apart from being a prisoner? Possibly. But because he went the path that he did, he had extensive opportunities to do so. He's in prison for a couple of years uh, under the reign of Felix and Festus and that transition there and has a number of opportunities to testify the gospel to people in the surrounding area. Why? Because he goes to Jerusalem, he gets arrested, God protects him, God brings him to Rome, and all these other sorts of things. Was there an element of Paul doing certain things, expecting a certain outcome? Yes. He's a Roman citizen. He knows if he appeals to Caesar, they can't kill him until he, until he presents his case before Caesar. There's also elements that I think he doesn't know that God makes clear to him along the way. So Paul describes in verses 18 through 23, and we'll get to 24 in a moment, verses 18 through 24, Paul describes the sort of ministry that he had among the Ephesians that I think he was modeling for them. And then he's going to turn in verses 25 through uh, 31 and say, and now this is the sort of ministry that you're supposed to have. But let's look at verse 24 first. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. book of Philippians says, I'm on a course. I have not yet arrived. I press toward the mark of God's calling. This passage says, I'm on a course. God's laid it out for me. I seek to faithfully fulfill it. Second Timothy says, I've just about finished my race. And so in these three letters of Paul, or accounts of Paul's writing, we see that he was aware that there was a course, a way, a walk that he was supposed to have, that he was doing it faithfully until God said he was done, and that God gave him the strength to do it. God laid out the boundaries of the race. God gave him strength to run the race. And God was the one that set the finish line. That's an awareness that I think all of us need to have about our lives. The boundaries of the race and the strength of God in it may not be clear to us in quite the same way that it was to Paul. Paul had direct revelation from the Holy Spirit sometimes about go here or don't go here. We operate more based on, 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 on principles and commands and things like that that are less you fill in name, go here, fill in name of place, and more, if I'm obeying God faithfully, I'll know what the next step is. But there's still parallels. God has set a course for each of our lives. We don't know a lot of it until we get around the next turn. We do know that he said that he'll be with us, that he'll give us strength for it, 
and that we can honor him in it. We don't know where the end of the race is. It could be tomorrow, it could be in 50 years. Most of us, it lies somewhere in between. But we have a course. We have to run it faithfully. God will help us to do it. So are you running the race? Are you sitting down by the side of the path because you've given up on it? Are you off on a side trail that's not where you're supposed to be? Or are you, like Paul, aware that your life is for God, you keep pressing toward the end goal, and God will tell you when, the, when you've reached the finish line? This was the sort of ministry that Paul had, pouring his heart and his soul and his life into the lives of the Ephesian believers for three years, despite opposition, despite difficulty, despite all of the challenges that he faced, because he had an awareness that he had a solemn responsibility before God to testify the gospel, to live his life faithfully until God called him somewhere else or closed the door to that opportunity of ministry. Then he turns and says, now what sort of ministry are you supposed to have? And again, he's, he's speaking to elders, so that's his primary application, and yet I think it has application to all of us as well. Because, you know, there's, there's a sense in which elders, pastors, and deacons have certain things that they must live up to, but that doesn't mean the rest of us just say, oh, that's for those guys, I can live however I want. That's a goal all of us should be striving toward, and all of us hopefully are striving toward, even if we don't do it perfectly. By God's help, hopefully we're more and more conformed to those examples. Verse 25, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So, verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Why did he not pull back from saying all the things that were true that he had to say? Because, verse 26, there's a question of whether he was going to be innocent of the blood of all men or guilty. What does he mean by that? I think he's looking back to some of the statements in the Old Testament about the fact that if there was somebody who was watching out for the good of the city, on the guard tower, looking down, seeing if any enemies were coming, if that person didn't do their job, and the city fell and people died, part of that responsibility was on the watchman who failed. If he warned them and they chose to ignore what he was saying, he was innocent even if the city fell. Paul's saying, I did not hide anything about who Jesus is, your responsibility to repent, what it means to follow him, so I'm innocent of the, of the blood of all men, and I didn't shrink back. I think with implication pretty clearly, so you guys should not shrink back either. Part of that means, verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. It's a, it's a poor example. But if somebody went out and bought a $50,000 car or a $500,000 house and they came and they said, here's the keys for it, take care of it, would you have some sense of responsibility? Presumably. 
And that's with a car that in Michigan is going to be rusted out in 15 years and with a house that's going to have problems galore in 20 or 30. How much more important is it that God has given to leaders of churches and to the church as a whole the responsibility to watch out for the souls of the people who are part of the congregation? That is a sobering responsibility. And it means that like the guy in the watchtower looking for dangers, we can't just sort of sit here blindly and say, everything's okay and not be aware of potential threats to our souls. What sorts of threats? Sin, clearly. If we love sin and live in sin, that has a detrimental effect on our souls, either because we don't know God at all or because we're not relating to Him rightly. As he says in the uh, next verse, I know after my departure savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. There are threats of false teaching from outside, either people who are telling lies and pretending that it's the truth, or people who say, I am going to come in, pretend to be one of you, and then I'm going to sow seeds of division and disunity and try to tear the church apart because I don't love the church, I love myself, and I love what I can get out of this sort of perverse pleasure in accomplishing my own ends. Either false teaching or people who just like to come into things and rip them apart because it makes them happy. Watch out for those sorts of people. Or, and this is the, the one that's even more frightening, and from your own, among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. We think the threat is always outside. Build a high enough wall, put enough guards on the towers, we'll keep it out. Sometimes the enemy is the person standing next to you. Sometimes the enemy is your own heart within you. Like it says in Proverbs, guard your heart because out of it flow the flows the wellspring of life. Is, is the course of your life comes out of your heart. So guard your heart and be aware of one another. Sometimes we think that this just sort of happens like one day somebody wakes up and they're like, I'm going to believe things that are full of lies and I'm going to try to persuade people in the church of them. It doesn't happen that way. We go down a path of tolerating wrong thinking or desires or whatever in our hearts and our minds and eventually we get to a point where it becomes evident to other people and spills out and either attracts them or, or pushes them away and then we end up with church splits and all these other sorts of things. But, but we have a responsibility to be using the Scripture back here to come alongside somebody and say, is everything okay? Or just on a positive sense, hey, what, God, what has God done in your life this week? How's God encouraged you this week? What can I pray for you about this week? Do you have those conversations with people? I know I struggle to do it. Consistently and faithfully, I try to do it, but how about you? Do you ask those questions of people? 
That's not like an in-your-face, tell me every detail of everything that happened the whole week. We should welcome those sorts of questions. And if we aren't asking them and aren't watching out for one another's souls, we will both be caught off guard and unprepared when what Paul says happens. And my prayer is that it doesn't happen here. But the reality is that it happens at most churches at some point or another. So, watch out for threats outside. Watch out for threats that can arise in our own hearts. Verse 31, Therefore, how do we guard against it? Therefore, being on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. This is a challenge to me because it's easy to view being a pastor of a church like any other job. It's a nine-to-five sort of thing, or like my father likes to joke, it's just you work on Sundays and then you don't the rest of the week, which is obviously not true. But um, we sort of think that sin takes a break, that threats only happen certain times of the day, and that false teachers can only confront us during a certain you know, normal work week. That's not how it works. So, you might think I've been following God faithfully for 30, 40, 50 years. I'm immune to these attacks. It's not true. You might think I'm a kid. They don't care about me. They're not going to try to lead me astray. They will. You might think, well, I've had a really good week, and I'm at hour 167 of 168 for this week, and God has helped me to have a, a, a week that honors Him, so the week is going to end out well, so you let your guard down. Sin is always waiting around the corner looking at you, waiting for you to let your guard down. Hopefully, by God's grace, we are less susceptible to it the further we go in our Christian life. But if Paul says, I'm still striving at this point in his ministry after he's been following God for as long as he had, why do we think that we can just sort of like give up and coast? We can't do that. So, those that God has given responsibility to watch over for the church have to watch out because it's a sacred responsibility, a stewardship that cannot be mishandled, watching out for threats outside and threats inside, and realizing that it requires work and labor to accomplish it. And this is a challenge to me to fulfill that task. But if I'm supposed to do it, I don't think that means the rest of you aren't supposed to do it. It's just that the ultimate responsibility falls on me. We still all have to do this for one another. So are we doing it? So Paul says, here's how I minister to you. Here's how you're supposed to minister. So what makes it possible? Verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The first thing that makes it possible for this sort of ministry to take place is that it's God's power that sustains us. Because I can fight against sin, and I will give in sooner or later. But do you know who didn't give in? Jesus Christ was tempted in every way the same as we are, yet without sin. So if we're going to have success, we need someone who's never failed in the battle. 
and that's Jesus. The other thing that helps us to succeed, beside God's power, which is clearly the most important thing, is godly examples. Verse 33, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who are with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. You need God's power and you need godly examples. Because God's power is the thing that enables you to live this way and godly examples are the ones who put practical reality to these truths and we see how it's lived out. So are you being a godly example? Are you following a godly example? When it says, I've coveted no one, I mean, that's the list that Paul puts in Timothy and Titus. Don't be greedy. These hands minister to my own needs and the men who are with me. Again, not greedy, not lazy, but diligent, doing God's work. By working hard, you see the words of the Lord Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. As far as I recall, that phrase is not recorded elsewhere in the Gospels, and yet it clearly is something that Christ said. And we sort of throw that out there sometimes flippantly. It's more blessed to give than to receive, sometimes to make ourselves feel better if we give a really nice present and the other person didn't. We're like, well, it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's not the point of what he's saying. He's saying, if you live your life for yourself, always getting things from other people, you're not following my example, you're not following Christ's example. The kids are reviewing a verse this morning. It is that Christ said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to, and to give his life a ransom for many, right? We want to be served. It's more blessed to give than to receive parallels Christ didn't come to be served, but to serve. So, is that what our lives look like? Verse 36, When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they were accompanying him to the ship. Paul's meeting with them. Paul is admonishing them. He's reminding them of his ministry, their ministry, and what enables ministry. And then we see the sort of ministry that he described. What's the end result? The end result is people who have a godly affection for one another, who are sorrowful knowing that one of their own is going to face a trial, and they will not be there to sustain him any longer, and wanting to be with him as long as possible. They're walking him up to the, to the walkway onto the ship. So, going back to the question we started with, how are you living your life? It is an empty goal to live your life merely so that you will be remembered because people forget. And because the most important thing is not whether people assess you properly, but whether God does. That being said, it is important and it is appropriate for us to seek to live ministering in a faithful way, recognizing that one of the results is this sort of godly affection and love 
and a sorrow when, that has to, when we have to be pulled apart from people who have ministered to us. The most important part of that is, are you ministering in a faithful way? But then the second part of it is, and do people recognize that, and has that godly affection been created? Because that's sort of a benchmark for, how are my ministering? And I realize there's some people that we connect with more than others, and some people that we just hit it off more than others, but if someone is faithfully serving, you come to love and respect and appreciate them, regardless of your personalities and interests and all those other superficial things. And that's what we see between Paul and the Ephesian elders in this passage, and that's what hopefully we would see in the ministry that we have to one another. This passage admonishes me to do my job well. I think it admonishes all of you to recognize the sorts of things that I'm trying to help watch out for you against and sort of a benchmark for, am I doing my job well? And if I'm not, tell me, because I want to do it well. And if you're not, work at it, because you have to do your job well too. God calls all of us to follow faithful examples in His power so that we would reach spiritual maturity, not torn apart by false teachers from outside or divisions from within, but rather, so instead of being a group that is scattered more and more as time goes on, a group that is more and more close-knit, such that if one of us has to leave for whatever reason, there's the sort of response that you see with the Ephesian elders toward Paul. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we pray for all of us. I ask for myself that I would be faithful to follow the admonition that Paul sets out for the elders at the church at Ephesus. I ask for all of us that they, all of us here, that, that they would help hold me to that, that we would hold one another to that sort of ministry. Lord, that you would build godly affection in our church for one another, that we would look out for each other and see what's going on in one another's lives so that we wouldn't be at the point of heartbreak of, of, this thing's falling apart in a public and a terrible way, but rather that we would be confronting sin in the early stages and doubt and all of these things. Lord, we just pray that you would be honored by the way that we live before you as a church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.